131, is the doctrine of salvation. And we looked last week at the fact that salvation is God's initiative, that in order for us to be saved, that is rescued, delivered from the consequences of sin, the eternal consequences of sin, but also the present consequences of sin, the power of sin is now broken if you've come to Christ. And then the, the future very presence of sin we are delivered, rescued from as, as well. So that's all tied up into that, into that phrase that we use to be saved, salvation, delivered, rescued from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. But in order for any of that to happen, because of what we saw back in section 3 on the doctrine of sin and how pervasive and deep sin is for us, namely that we are dead in trespasses and sins, so we have no spiritual life. We don't have the, the ability to respond to overtures from God. So we can hear the gospel, and it's a lifeless person who is hearing that. And so God has to move upon the heart of that person to make them alive. And the Bible says that's what He does. So Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it says in verse 1, then in verse 4, but, and that's one of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible, the great contrast, but God who is rich in mercy made you alive. So while you were still dead, He made you alive. And then having made you alive, we saw last week, now you can respond, and you do respond. Those who He makes alive respond, and they respond by believing. They believe who Jesus is and what He's done. That's faith, believing faith, synonymous. And repenting, faith and belief go together. You believe who Jesus is, you believe what Jesus has done for us, well, then that necessitates a, a change of mind, a change of mind, yes, about who Christ is, but also a change of mind about ourselves and about our sin. And so we move in a different direction. And so we respond to the overture of God, having given us spiritual life that we didn't have through, with faith and repentance. Now, having done that, you're then saved from that moment. But then the Bible teaches that there are a number of things that happen in that blessed moment when you are born again, saved, you become a Christian, you're converted, you know, all of these terms that we use for this same event I've described for you. I'm age 19, I'm in my bed, I read Ephesians 2, and God turns the light on and I'm converted, I'm born again. Well, what all happened at that point? And that's what these next couple of lessons are about. They're about the, the benefits, they're about the results of having been made alive and then as a result having believed and repented. So, Verse uh, 131, or <laughs> verse, page 131, this lesson is on the benefits uh, of Christ that, that are what we call positional, positional benefits. The benefits of union with Christ, which will be examined in this lesson and the next one, can be divided in these two types, positional and practical. Now, Another way to think of the practical benefits that we'll see next week is experiential. These are things that you experience. These are things that occur to you in practice, in life. Whereas the positional benefits, as we're going to see, are things that you have, but you don't do. You don't practice them, but nevertheless, they are yours. So we've got these two types of things that happen to everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who's converted, everyone who's saved, everyone who's born again, has these positional benefits and these practical. Next week we'll look at the practical. That next paragraph, positional benefits are those blessings that the believer owns but does not feel. For instance, the Bible says that believers have been adopted by God into His family. Now, you did not feel that take place. So it's not your, you didn't experience it. It's not part of your practice. That'll be stuff next week. But adoption is one of those things that you have that was given to you, but that you don't carry out in your, in your practical life. It has practical implications, but it's not experiential. It's positional. Nonetheless, you have been legally adopted by God, and you are now and forever His legal son or daughter. 
Now, let me just stop there for a minute. A lot of errors occur, friends, when feeling is demanded of, spirit, of, of positional benefits. When, when you require feeling of things that the Bible says happen, <laughs> then take the Bible at its word that it's happened, whether you feel it or not. And if you demand a feeling, then in the absence of the feeling, you may doubt that the thing actually happened. So forgiveness. You know, you come to Christ you, in salvation, you ask Him to forgive you. You may feel elated about that. Many times you, people do. But, you know, you, you may not. You, you, and some of that even depends on you and how you're wired. Some people are way more feeling-oriented than others. I'm not real feeling-oriented. And so, you know, some people may cry, they may have all kinds of, but other people may not. And then if they hear preaching or they hear teaching that in effect equates the feeling with the reality, then if they didn't have the feeling, they may question the reality. So positional benefits are things that God says you have. You may or may not feel them, but you own them. They are, in fact, real. You know, I grew up Pentecostal. You guys know that. And in my Pentecostal background, one of the mistakes that we made, one of the many mistakes, don't get me started. <laughs> oh, man, I, I mean, just this. All right, so what, 2013, you know, John MacArthur out in California, they have a whole conference devoted to Strange Fire. You guys, you guys heard of that? The Strange Fire. They, and they wrote a book out of it called Strange Fire. We have it in our resource center. If you haven't read it, I recommend you read it. Because people just won't believe what Pentecostalism has foisted on Christianity and the kind of nonsense. And it's done a lot of damage, honestly. And I was just reading uh, this past week an article about how some of the craziest political stuff that's going on on the right wing, and I'm a right winger in the sense that I'm conservative, okay? But I'm talking about the like extreme right wing stuff from Christians, the stuff Pentecostals are doing with that is, is scary. The prophecies that they're claiming about America, the prophecies that they're claiming about polit particular political candidates, and all of these things are supposed to be messages from God, all that, okay? So uh, that was my nightly fix on beating on Pentecostals. Let me, let me move on. <laughs> but one of the mistakes that in my Pentecostal upbringing was to equate feeling with pretty much everything. The reality of the spirit was seen in emotion. And so to be spirit baptized, to be baptized with the spirit, to, to actually know that you have the spirit, you had to have experienced something. And that something was speaking in tongues. The Pentecostal church that I grew up in, the whole denomination that it was associated with, that was one of their cardinal teachings, that the initial evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. And so everyone, if you're going to have the Spirit, needs to speak in tongues. Everyone. When I was a boy, they would pray over me to have me speak in tongues. They would actually, I mean, I can still remember this. I got these people around me, they got their hands on me. The hands always shook to give, make it a little scarier. <laughs> and there's a bunch of them praying. They're all praying at the same time. And these are people that you looked up to and you respected, you know, in the church, but they're saying, I'm supposed to speak in tongues, and they're actually doing this. They're actually saying, let it come, let it flow. They're doing this physically with my, and nothing ever happened. I never, I never spoke in tongues. My dear mother, who was the pastor's wife, never spoke in tongues, which you can imagine would have been quite scandalous in a church that thought, in order to show you have the reality of the Spirit, you have to, to speak in tongues. But that was, that was what they did. And so it is very dangerous to associate emotion, feeling, with the reality of God's promises. If God says He forgives you, He forgives you whether you feel forgiven or not. And likewise, if someone comes and asks you for forgiveness, then the reality of you granting them forgiveness is real whether you feel good toward that person or not. Now, you can and should pray for the Lord to grant you a love for that person. 
But you may not have it right away. But you can still forgive them even if you don't feel like it. <laughs> so lose the feeling thing, okay? Lose the idea that the reality of your Christianity is based on how you feel. This lesson is going to focus on three of these positional benefits that you have but may not necessarily feel. Justification, adoption, and eternal security. So first of all, justification. It is this, the act of God whereby He declares a sinner to be legally righteous and He treats him as such. It does not mean to be made righteous, but rather to be declared legally righteous. So here is what is being said there, that justification is a term used in the Bible and it is a legal term. It was used in courtroom settings in the Roman Empire. So in your New Testament, it's a term borrowed from the court, from the legal system. And the idea is that you have the judge, and the judge has before him a guilty party. But the judge declares that person to be not guilty. And the judge exonerates the, the person. Well, now using that, the Bible says God is the judge. We're the guilty party, and God declares us to be righteous. Now, it doesn't mean that in that moment you become completely righteous. We know that, right? I mean, I'm now going on 60. 19 is when I was justified on that night when I trusted Christ. So I'm declared righteous, but in all the years since, in the 40 years since, I'm still working on being righteous. I'm not completely righteous. I'm more righteous than I was when I was 19. But I'm not there in this side of heaven. I'll never completely be there. But God declares me to be so. God looks at me as completely righteous, even though I'm, I'm not. Now here's one, of the, here's one of the great passages on that in the Bible. It's in Romans chapter 4. And here's what the Bible says about God declaring us to be righteous, but the reality of what we actually are. It says, When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. But to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies... Now, you get this phrase. God who justifies the wicked... His faith is credited as righteousness. Notice who's justified. The wicked. <laughs> so God declares you to be righteous, even though you're actually wicked. <laughs> so you're still a sinner. You're still going to struggle with sin. But God's justification, His judgment is that this person is not guilty, and in fact, they're better than not guilty. They're righteous. Because not guilty just means you're not going to be punished. But righteous means you actually have positive righteousness to your account. Now we're going to see where we get that positive righteousness from, this complete righteousness from. It's not from ourselves because we are, we are sinners. But for now, just understand it is a judicial thing that God does. And that's why it's a positional benefit that you have. You come to Christ and He declares you to be completely righteous. Made righteous means that God would infuse you with righteousness and you, and you then, uh, your justification is based upon your own level of righteousness. This is what just about everybody who doesn't understand the gospel of grace teaches. That you're made righteous rather than declared righteous. Roman Catholicism makes a gigantic deal out of being made righteous. They loathe this idea of being declared righteous. In fact, uh, they use a derogatory term for declaring righteous. They call it a, this is a quote, a legal fiction. You know, it's because it's from legal terminology, as you heard me say, but then they say it's a fiction. And so they make fun of it because I've said, God declares you to be righteous, but you're not actually righteous. And so they 
say, you know, God's only going to deal with people who are, who are actually righteous, and so he makes you righteous, and you've got the ability to be righteous, and so it's on you to continue to be righteous and to work your way so that you're acceptable to God and all that then goes with that. So that's what justification is. Now, it's a work of God, so it is not a work of man, contrary to what works-oriented religions say, like Roman Catholicism. Romans chapter 3 says this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now notice that freely by His grace. How are we declared righteous? Freely by His grace. Do you guys remember what grace is going back to lesson number four? Um, No, you don't. (laughs) Okay, fine. But grace is unmerited, unearned, unwanted favor from God. And so you don't, you don't make yourself, you're not made righteous, you don't earn righteousness. It comes to us freely by the grace of God. It's a gift of, of God. The source of our salvation then is this unearned, undeserved righteousness. Now this assumes that we've been regenerated, that we've been given the spiritual life that we talked about last week. But once we've been made alive, we trust Christ, then we are freely given this gift from God of being declared righteous. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God who justifies, Romans 8. Galatians 2 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in in Christ Jesus. So here's one way to think about this this idea of positional versus experiential practical benefits. Let me me give you one way to think about this. On the one hand, Romans, as you can see, a number of these passages are quoted from Romans. I quoted a minute ago from Romans chapter 4 in addition. And then... And it's all about God and God taking the initiative and God's the one who declares righteous. But if you were to go to the book of James, James uses the term justification as well. But James actually talks about justification connected to works. And that has confused people because here you got Paul in Romans and in Galatians and he's very clear, works don't justify you. It's the act of God, all of that. He declares Then you go over to James, and James is all about, you know, not just being hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. Remember that from James chapter 1? And then in chapter 2, he starts talking about faith and real faith, really believing that those who really believe will have a change made, and they will actually seek to serve God. And then he uses as an illustration Abraham, which turns out to be the same guy Paul was using as an illustration. (laughs) And James uses an illustration, and James ends up saying that, that, that Abraham was, in a sense, justified by what he did. What is, how do you do that? Paul, it's not what we do. James, Abraham is justified somehow by what he did. Well, in James chapter 2, James is looking at what Abraham did in response to his faith. And do you guys remember... One of the major occasions in the life of Abraham and what he did in response to believing in God. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, if you care to jot that down, Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in the New Testament. Abraham believed, had faith, and he was justified, credited with this righteousness. That's Genesis 15. Seven chapters later, in chapter 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. All right, so here's a justified guy. Here's a guy who's been regenerated. Here's a guy who's been saved. And God now says, obey me. It's a test of faith. It's a test of do you really believe? And, of course, he passed the test. He was willing to to do that. God spared Isaac, if you remember the story. But... 
That's the difference between Paul and James. Paul is talking about what God did, like in Genesis 15, declaring him to be righteous without Abraham ever done anything. But now Abraham is righteous not just in the sight of God, but in the sight of people because he obeyed of this God. So one way to think about this difference between positional benefits and practical benefits that we'll see next week is positional benefits are those things that God sees. Practical benefits are those things that everybody else sees. And James is talking about, throughout the book of James, the works we do, the evidences that we have, that we truly possess these gifts that God promises. All right, page 132. It's the gift of God, it's the act of God, and top of page 132, it's the result of the believer's union with Christ. It's based on Christ Jesus' death as our substitute. He took our Isaiah 53, predicted that the Messiah would come. We know Christ Jesus is that Messiah, and He took our sins upon Himself. He took our place on the cross, and at that time, mankind's sin was placed upon Him And he experienced the full force of God's wrath. We saw that under the work of Christ in the previous section. It's based on that, but it involves the legal transfer, that is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. All right, so what's the connection between number one and two there? On the one hand, you got his death as our substitute. And then number two, there's this transfer of his righteousness. So I want to remind you guys of the connection between the death of Jesus, and the righteousness of Jesus that we get. The the death of Jesus was fully acceptable to God because that death was preceded by the perfect life of righteousness of Christ. If he had not lived an absolutely perfectly righteous life, the death would not have been acceptable. So when you see the death of Jesus on our behalf, the reason that He can be our substitute is because He is, in fact, a perfectly righteous substitute. And because He's the perfectly righteous substitute, the Bible says God raised Him from the dead. That resurrection from the dead was a demonstration that God accepted, God the Father accepted the full life and death of Jesus that he sent him to accomplish, and he raised him. In fact, Romans 4.25, Romans 4.25 says, I'm quoting, he was raised for our justification. So the death was acceptable to God the Father because it was preceded by that perfect life. The death itself was part of his righteousness because it was an act of obedience to God the Father. Everything Jesus ever did in his life was in obedience to God the Father. He dies as an act of obedience. And the Bible uses the, or not the Bible, but theologians use these two terms to refer to those two things, his life of righteousness and his death. That's also an act of obedient righteousness. His life and his death. For his life, theologians call that his active obedience. Active obedience. He's obedient actively in everything that he does and everything he says and everything he thinks throughout his entire life. But then in his death, that's his passive obedience. That in coming to this point and now offering himself as as a sacrifice, that sacrifice is part of his obedience. But the death itself is not something he didn't kill himself. He had other people kill him. He actively did all these other things all of his life. He passively accepted the execution that God willed. And so he has his active obedience in his life of righteousness, his passive obedience in his death. And because of all that, you have number two, that you have this legal transfer of his righteousness to us. God made Christ Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He experienced our punishment so that faith in Him, we would not have to experience that punishment. The one who committed no sin was treated as if he were a sinner. He was punished accordingly. 
so that we who have no righteousness could be treated by God as if we are. When sinners genuinely repent of their sin and determine to obey Christ, they take advantage of Christ's death upon the cross. At that point, they have their sins forgiven and are legally united with Christ the righteous one. From then on, God treats us as clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not clothed in our own sinfulness. So you're clothed in Christ's righteousness, justified. He looks at you as if you have the righteousness of Jesus. Wow. Even though you're a sinner. Because Jesus did everything right, God looks at you like you did everything right. Well, what that means is, then what can happen to your relationship with God going forward? I mean, how long will you have that righteousness of Jesus? Uh, that can't change. So you have that forever. It's not conditional. You are justified. You are declared. And you will have that forever. And so it should be a great, a great uh, encouragement to us that we, that we have this. So it produces a positive relationship with God. We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, friend, you struggle with sin, and I struggle with sin. But always remember that God has, through Christ, justified us, declared us to be righteous, looks at us through the righteousness of, of Christ. So, do you have to be good to go to heaven? Be careful, it's a trick question. Do you have to be good to go to heaven? You know, immediately we might say, well, no, you've beaten on the fact that salvation is not by our works, that it comes by what Christ did in His life and on the cross, and that that's freely given to us, and we receive it with the empty hands of faith. So it can't be by, by well, it can't require me to be good, because if it does, I'm not good, and I'm not going to make it. Well, I say it's a trick question because, uh, yeah, you actually do have to be good. You have to be perfect, in fact. <laughs> uh, Matthew 5.48, Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. All right, so, so now what? <laughs> God's standard is perfection. I'm a sinner. Even when He justifies me, I'm still wicked. He justifies the wicked. This side of heaven, I'm not going to attain that perfection. So, so what gives? Well, what gives is that perfection that you require, that you must have, doesn't come from you. It comes from Christ. That's why this justification then should be so precious to you. Because you've got to be able to stand before God as perfectly righteous. But you're never going to achieve that perfect righteousness. But Jesus did and imputed it, counted it to you. So this is similar to, not exactly like, but similar to something we have in our uh, political system. You know, our Constitution allows the president to pardon people, gives the pardon power. You guys familiar with that? So the president can, and a lot of states give the governors. Governors can, uh, can give ex what they call executive clemency, pardoning someone. So the president, usually at the end of a term, if they uh, are, if they're, usually at the end of an eight-year term. <laughs> uh, so at the end of an eight-year term, because, you know, if they've got reelected to another four years, they can't have another four-year term. You can only have two four-year terms, right? So when they have that second four-year term and they get to the end of that, and they're not having to run for reelection anymore, they issue a whole raft of pardons to people. And sometimes these are people they know, and sometimes, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, sometimes they're people who it appears they've been railroaded by the judicial system. Uh, but they do this because there are no political consequences <laughs> for them. Now, Trump, you know, pardoned a whole bunch of people while he was president. Friends of his who were actually going to jail because of him. I'm just not making any of this up. And then he pardoned them. And so, anyway, it's a whole, that was a whole unprecedented kind of use of the pardon power. But they have it, and it's similar to what God the judge in this legal arrangement of justification does, that he is able to pardon someone, to declare them to be righteous before the bar of God's justice. So you guys remember in the 70s that uh, Richard Nixon was pardoned? Uh, so Gerald Ford, who became president uh, after Nixon resigned, 
A month after Ford became president, he pardoned Nixon for any crimes he may have committed while in office, Watergate and all of that. And that was very controversial. So here's the difference, though, between what Ford did for Nixon and what God does for us. You know, Nixon, before the law, is innocent. But with God's justification, it's more than just we're innocent. We're actually declared to be righteous. See, Nixon was just declared to be not guilty. That's different than being completely righteous. Two, God treats us as if we are justified. That's why we have this peace with God, this positive relationship. You know, Nixon got pardoned, so he didn't have to go to jail, but many people reviled him still. But God does not revile us, even though we're still sinners. He justifies us, and He treats us accordingly. So this idea of justification is a rich and deep truth in the Bible. That's the first of these positional benefits. Here's the second, adoption. And it, likewise, comes from the legal system. It's the legal placement of one as a son, a child, and heir. A believer, as a believer, you have been placed in God's family, and you've been given all of the rights and privileges of a son. God is your legal father. Like justification, it's the work of God. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. And it is the result of the believer's union with, with Christ. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, Galatians 3, through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. To be baptized or to be immersed into Christ is another way of describing our union with Him. It's not water baptism. That's when we were saved. That's what it's talking about. You're spirit baptized. United with Christ. The believer who belongs to Christ in this way is a son or daughter. He's an heir of the promises of spiritual blessings given to, to Abraham. So let me talk for a moment about this idea of adoption in the Roman legal system. In Paul's day, Paul who wrote Galatians and Romans, where he talks about adoption, uh, an adopted child, especially an adopted son, sometimes had greater prestige and privilege than the natural children. This is what one commentator says. According to Roman law, a father's rule over his children was absolute. If he was disappointed in his natural son's skill, character, or any other attribute, he would search diligently for a boy available for adoption who demonstrated the qualities he desired. If the boy proved himself worthy, the father would take the necessary legal steps for adoption. At the death of, a, of the father, a favored adopted son would sometimes inherit the father's title, the major part of the estate, and would be the primary progenitor of the family's name. Because of its obvious great importance, the process of Roman adoption involved several carefully prescribed legal procedures. The first step totally severed the boy's legal and social relationship to his natural family, and the second step placed him permanently into his new family. In addition to that, all of his previous debts and other obligations were eradicated as if they had never existed. For the transaction to become legally binding, it also required the presence of seven reputable witnesses who could testify, if necessary, to any challenge of the adoption after the father's death. That's what would go on in Roman adoptions. And now here in the Bible, in the Roman, written in the Roman Empire, Paul takes that idea and he applies it to what God does in bringing us into his family. And notice that part about you've severed your old family. So you've come out from the, the world. The Bible says, you know, prior to coming to God, really our father was the devil. We've come out of that. And we now have a new, we have a new father. And he's canceled all of our debts from the past and from the old life and brought us all into this new life. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing indeed. And it has practical benefits. It results in the leading of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, 
how many times of don't raise your hand but how many times have you said or have you heard said hey the spirit led me to then fill in the blank now that language spirit leading comes from this verse as as i recall that's the only this verse is where being led by the spirit this is the one place where it's used if there's another place it's escaping me now it's the one place those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Now notice it doesn't say anything in that verse about how you're led by the Spirit. The way it's normally used, the way you've either said it or heard it, it's been that the person usually had some kind of feeling that God was prompting them to do something. I was led by the Spirit to do X. Now I'm not... I'm not devaluing the idea, of course, as in fact, we'll see this in a bit, that God, in fact, works in our lives to put us in positions that He wants us to be in, to bring things to our remembrance from Scripture that then would be brought to bear on the particular situation we're in so that we do the things that He wants done. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not devaluing that. What I am, though, warning against is taking a mystical approach to how God moves us along in our lives and how we make decisions. Too many Christians are way too mystical about this stuff. And so they wait on the feeling, which is usually equated with the Spirit, which then gets equated with the leading. If you were to read Romans chapter 8, where it says those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God, then go on and read what the evidence of being led by the Spirit is. It's actually moral evidence. It's actually that you live a Christian life. That you're adopted into God's family means that you are increasingly conformed to the image of the Father. He's now our Father, and so we become more and more to look like Him. As a matter of fact, it's in that very chapter, Romans chapter 8. Later on, you guys remember where it says that those He predestined, He also called, and those He called, He also justified. But it says in the verse just before that, that God's end game is this, that we might be, I'm quoting now, conformed to the image of His Son. We might become like Christ. Well, Christ completely reflects the image of the Father. So God's end game for His children is that we continue to grow spiritually so that we become more and more like His image. So children who are led by the Spirit of God then are children who become daily, weekly, yearly more like Him. And that's what Romans chapter 8 talks about. It doesn't talk about making decisions. It doesn't talk about if I want to buy a new car or a new house or should I marry this person or should I join this church or any of that. And then saying, you know, the Lord led me to X because I felt a sort of oomph about it. So just be careful about about the mysticism. One of the results of being an adopted son is that the believer is indwelt by the Spirit who enables us to understand the significance of the Scriptures. And using that, the Spirit convicts of sin, produces Christian assurance, provides direction for living. That's a better way to think about it. So adoption results in the leading of the Spirit and in loving discipline by the Father. Romans chapter 12 teaches that those who are truly sons and daughters of God God, as a good father and a loving father, will not allow us to go in directions that are harmful. And so if we're going in directions that are harmful, this passage is saying that he will discipline. And he will keep that from happening. Now, if you're somebody who can go for prolonged periods of time opposite the direction that God tells you to go and nothing happens, that should scare you. Because God's children, he disciplines. He chases down. If you know somebody like that, you know somebody who says, yeah, I know Jesus, but I'm just like living my own thing, and nothing's happening, then we're probably looking, and that person ought to consider that profession of faith to be invalid, that we're not really a child of God. If we're really a child of God, then we are conforming to the image of Jesus, and if we're not doing that, God's dis lovingly disciplining us for that. God does not punish believers as He does unbelievers. Rather, He disciplines believers out of infinite love, desiring to do what's best. His goal is not necessarily our happiness and prosperity, but Christ-likeness. He disciplines us with that goal 
in mind. And then the last benefit, you got justification, you got adoption. The last of these positional benefits is eternal security. This is the positional aspect of the doctrine of perseverance. We'll see perseverance in the next lesson. That refers to the fact that we will grow and continue in our salvation, like I just mentioned. But eternal security refers to the fact that all true believers are kept in their salvation by God Himself. So Philippians 1, being confident of this, that He who began a work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of, of Christ Jesus. So you have this benefit that you don't feel, but you own. Namely, you're eternally in the hand of God. You're eternally secure in the hand of, of God. It's the work of God like justification and adoption are. It's a result of God's ownership of the believer. John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed this from that passage, but you've got two sets of hands going here. <laughs> Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And then there's His hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he goes on to say, my father gave them to me. And no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. You know, it should be good enough for you that you're in Jesus' hand. But just in case you're a little concerned, <laughs> you've got this double security in the hand of Christ and in the hand of God the Father as well. What a beautiful, what a beautiful thing. So that's uh, eternal security. Page 134, God has given the Holy Spirit to every, every believer as a symbol of ownership. This demonstrates that his ownership is never going to be relinquished. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, says Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. For the day of redemption. Of course, that's the, that's the end time. So you're going, to have, you're going to be secure for as long as you have the Holy Spirit. You'll have the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption is the point. And it's the result, like the other two, justification and adoption of our union with Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's God's will for all believers. Here's Jesus in John chapter 6. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, let's break that down a little bit. It's the Father's will that the Son keep and resurrect every believer. Okay, that's what that verse is saying. It's the Father's will that God the Son will keep and resurrect every believer. This is the will of Him who sent me. I'll lose none of those that He has given, but rather I'll raise them up. So that's the Father's will. So if the Son does not do that, then what would that mean? It would mean one of two things. Either he can't because he's unable. So can that possibly be true? No. Or two, he won't <laughs> because he's rebellious. And that can't be true either, can it? So if indeed it is the will of him who sent me, if it's the will of God the Father, that Christ lose none of those that he has been given, but rather raise them up at the last day, then in fact that will happen. Christ can keep all because He's the infinite God, and He will because He's holy in obedience. So therefore, eternal security is a real thing for the true, for the genuine, genuine believer. Now, this eternal security idea, let me talk about a few passages related to that, and then if you have any questions, we might have some time for that, believe it or not. So uh, I think I've told you guys that years ago, a couple, boy, it's been a long time now, 25 years ago, I went to New York and I attended, I went there for a conference on Roman Catholicism. And the reason is, is because there were some speakers that had written some books on Roman Catholicism and I was doing some teaching on that and so it was going to be helpful for that. So it was like a three-day conference, but as part of that, one of the speakers was going to be having a debate 
with a Roman Catholic apologist. Now, an apologist, you know, apologetics is a defense of the faith. And so you got this Roman Catholic apologist who's going to debate this Protestant apologist. And that was part of my conference. This was taking place at a hotel, had a big ballroom, and there were hundreds of people that came to this thing. And many of those hundreds included busloads of like nuns and priests who were coming because the Roman Catholic guy had advertised this. So it was like a big, you know, it was a big thing. And I get there kind of early because during the Q&A, I want to be in a position to be able to get to the microphone and ask a question if, if in fact I have a question. So when I got there, in the aisleways, they had these mic microphone stands set up. And so I got right next to one of the microphone stands. So as the debate goes on, um, the uh, Roman Catholic apologist says, makes this statement. Well, first I should say the debate was about eternal security. So are, are Christians eternally secure? That was the question. And the Roman Catholic guy saying no. And the other guy saying yes. And during the course of the debate, the Roman Catholic says, uh, God can disinherit his children. That, you know, a father can disinherit a child, and God can disinherit a child. So it can be that you're a child of God at one point, and you're not a child of God at another point. And he made another, a bunch of other unbiblical statements, but that was one. So when the Q&A time came, I thought, you know, I want to ask this guy a question. And so I, I jump up, and I jump up like really fast, and I'm fifth in line. <laughs> like four people beat me in the microphone. <laughs> but nonetheless, I still got to ask my question. And I said, my question is for Mr. Sungenis, Robert Sungenis, you could look that up. And I said, you know, I used to believe like you do, that one can lose their salvation, that a child can be disinherited, and that God the Father can disinherit a child. I, used to, I grew up that way. My Pentecostal background, that's what I grew up with. I said, until I read passages like, and then I quoted for him, uh, John 5.24, John 5.24. And here's what Jesus says in John 5.24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. So I quoted that. And I said, you know, I came to realize that in order to believe like I used to and the way you believe, that you have to deny one of two things. You either have to deny that eternal life lasts forever, or you have to deny that eternal life starts when you believe in Jesus. And I said, so which of those do you deny? And he goes, now repeat that. <laughs> And I said, well, based on a passage like John 5, 24, in order to believe what you've presented tonight, you have to believe one of these two things. Either eternal life does not last forever, or eternal life does not begin when you believe in Jesus. Because if both of those are true, think about it. If eternal life begins at the moment I believe in Jesus, and eternal lasts forever, then, I could never, then we could never lose it, right? And that's all, what I said to him is absolutely true about my own experience. I came to realize in my Pentecostal upbringing that behind our view that you could lose your salvation was this, a denial that eternal life begins now. We believed, and it took me a long time to realize this, we believed, and many believe, eternal life begins after you die. Eternal life begins after the judgment. But the Bible teaches eternal life begins now, when you believe. And if eternal is forever, guess what? So I say, which of those do you deny? And, and John 5, 24 clearly teaches both, doesn't it? Truly, truly, I say to you, who, who hears my word and believes, this is all present tense, has eternal life in the present. And in case we're confused about that, Jesus adds to the future, and shall not in the future come into condemnation but is, in the present, 
pass from death to life. I mean, it's all there, baby. And so, tell me, Mr. Sengenis. And he says, well, he says, uh, if you get a driver's license, this, I mean, this is his answer. If you get a driver's license, it has an expiration date. Now, just think about that. I'm asking about eternal life. And he gives me an illustration of something with an expiration date, right? I go, anything with an expiration date isn't eternal. So you're denying that it isn't forever. You're denying eternal life lasts forever. You're denying it begins now. He then says, later in that passage in John chapter 5, it talks about, that's the way he said it, it talks about judgment. So the mere existence of judgment then for him means that anything you have right now is probationary because otherwise there wouldn't be a judgment. Do you, see, do you see what he's saying? So your driver's license is conditional. You could lose your driver's license. But again, your driver's license is not eternal. And the mere existence of judgment doesn't make what we have now conditional. Two weeks ago, I preached on the judgment seat of Christ. And all of us will appear before the judge. There is a judgment for believers about what we did with what God gave us. But it's not a judgment for heaven or hell. It's not a judgment for whether or not we have eternal life. It's not a judgment for any of that. So, you know, he clearly is confused and seriously wrong about that. And so, understand the Bible teaches very clearly that God gives everlasting life, eternal life, to those who believe in the present. That lasts forever, and if those two things are true, it starts now and it's eternal, then you can never lose your salvation. That's one. Two. I mentioned Paul and James, and James focuses on justification that can be seen as evidenced by how we behave, like in the life of Abraham, where Paul is emphasizing the act of God declaring us to be righteous. It's not something we see or that we feel. Another, uh, another potential conflict between Paul and James has confused people a lot. And I want to address that last in our remaining time. Uh, and that is that Paul makes very clear in his letters that we are saved by faith, by believing, apart from works. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, that we are, we are justified by faith, apart from works of the law. That's what it says. Justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, uh, Martin Luther used to use, that was like his main verse, the Protestant Reformation, Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, justification by faith alone, not by works. And he's right about that. Roman Catholics will say, this guy Robert Sungenis, I've heard him say it and others, they would say, hey, Notice what it says there in Romans 3.28. It says that we're justified by faith apart from works, but it doesn't say just apart from works, period. It says apart from works of the law. So then they try to make the point that it's not that you don't have to have works to be justified. It's that it's the works of the law that can't justify you. So you've got different works that you have to be justified by. Well, there's a few problems with that. One, if you just argue from the greater to the lesser, I mean, who's got a better list of rules than the, than the law? God made that list. So if nobody could keep that list, what, you're coming up with a different list of works that I can be justified by? No, I don't think so. So that's one. Two, the very next chapter, that's the last verse uh, in in Romans chapter 3, or right near the very end of that chapter, that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. But then comes chapter 4. And chapter 4, right away, Paul says, well, let's talk about Abraham. He starts talking about Abraham and how Abraham was justified. And Abraham was justified by believing, and it was counted to him as, as righteousness. And God justifies the wicked, just like he did with, with Abraham, Romans chapter 4. Now, here's the thing about Abraham. If you remember your Bible chronology, Abraham lived 500 years before the law. 
The law didn't even exist at the time, Abraham. <laughs> so here Paul uses Abraham as his example. So when he talks about the works of the law at the end of chapter 3, he's clearly talking just about works in general. Because he then gives the illustration of Abraham who hadn't, didn't have the law of Moses anyway. Moses didn't come until 500 years later. So Paul makes it very clear. Romans chapter 3 and 4, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God, he makes it clear, right? That's Paul. But then you get James. James comes along, James chapter 2. And James says famously, or infamously, depending on how you look at it, he says, faith without works, you guys remember? Faith without works is dead. And then he goes on to say, if you say you're saved by your works, show me your salvation by your, if you're, if you're saved apart from works, show me your salvation by your life. Because faith without works is dead. Well, how do you put those two together? Paul says it's faith, not works. James says, hey, give me some works. And here's the, here's the answer is both James and Paul believe the same thing. They both believe that justification is by faith alone apart from works. And the difference in their emphasis is that Paul is answering one question and James is answering a different one. The question that Paul is answering is this. How is a person justified before God? That's the question. And his answer is, by faith apart from works. James is answering a different question. His question is this, what kind of faith justifies someone before God? They both believe it's faith. Paul's question is, what justifies a person before God? The answer is faith apart from works. James believes the same thing, but now the question he's asking and being asked is, what kind of faith justifies a person. Now, how do I know this? Let me give it to you from James chapter 2. It's James chapter 2 that says, faith without works is dead. But here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers? Verse 14, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now, notice this next question. Can such faith save him? And you know what the key word in that question, can such faith save him? Let me say it again. Can such faith save him? What's the key word there? It's such. James is going, can that kind of faith save him? And what James is saying is the faith that saves is a faith that is, in fact, followed up by a life that's been changed. So now to go back to Martin Luther. Luther said rightly, we are justified by faith alone apart from works. But then he said this, we're justified by faith alone apart from works, but not by a faith that remains alone. We come to Christ, it's by faith alone. We believe in Him and what He has done, and we're declared righteous, given eternal security, adopted into God's family. But true believing faith is a faith now that results in living for God works. Imperfectly, mixed with sin, all of that. And that's what James is saying. Can such faith save him? If somebody comes and says, hey, I believe, and nothing changes, we got a problem. Next week, we're going to see the benefits, the practical benefits, the experiential benefits that occur for the person who comes and truly believes in, in Jesus. Okay? You guys want to see what time it is? It's 8.15, right on the dot. See you guys next week.